Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we feature a panel from the Nuestras Raices Pavilion at the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books called the Panza Monologues, Book Reading and Platica. The Panza Monologues feature the words of Chicanas speaking with humor and candor about their panzas. The panelists are Virginia Gris and Erma Mayorga. This is part one of a two-part series. You are listening to the Panza Monologues, book reading and platica from the 2015 Festival of Books on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Welcome to the 7th Annual Tucson Festival of Books. My name is Margie Farmer. Thank you for joining us today for the Panza Monologues. This is a reading and uh, platica by Irma Mayorga and Virginia Grice. This presentation is brought to you by Nuestras Raices, a Pima County Public Library program that builds community by celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. The following presentation and all of those at the Pima County Public Library tent are made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Pima County Library and the University of Arizona Confluence Center for Creative Inquiry. The Ponce Monologues is an original solo performance piece based on women's stories about their panzas. <laughs> Written, compiled, and collected by Virginia and Irma and fashioned into a tour de force solo performance. The Panza Monologues features the words of Chicanas speaking with humor and candor. Their stories boldly place the Panza front and center as a symbol that reveals the lurking truths about women's thoughts, lives, loves, abuses, and living conditions. The Panza Monologues premiered in 2003 and has since been staged at colleges throughout the Southwest. From abusive relationships to being Panzona, to laboring organizing, the Ponza Monologues explores the connections between our bodies, our culture, and politics from a Latina feminist perspective. I'd like to introduce Irma. She is a native of San Antonio, Texas. She is a Chicana scholar, artist in theater, and an associate professor of theater at Dartmouth College. She is also a director and award-winning playwright. Throughout her career, she has worked between academic, nonprofit, and community-based sectors of the arts. She is the first Chicana playwright to receive an invitation to develop and pre present work at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference. She has received research fellowships from the Smithsonian Institute, Stanford University, Florida State University, Dartmouth College, and an Artist-in-Resident Fellowship from the Santa Fe Institute of the Arts and Williams College Bolin Dissertation Fellowship. Virginia writes plays that are set in bars without windows, barrio rooftops, and lesbian bedrooms. Her, her play Blue was a recipient of the Yale Drama Series Award and was recently published by the Yale University Press. In addition to showing people her panza and college cafeterias, classrooms, and conference halls. She has performed both nationally and internationally. As an activist, she has facilitated organizing efforts among women, immigrant, Chicano, working class, and queer youth. Virginia has taught writing 
for performance at the university level and as a public school teacher in community centers and the juvenile correction system. Please welcome our guest today. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's good to be in Tucson. So raise your hand if you thought about your panza today. <laughs> we thought about our panzas a lot. And so Irma's going to talk a little bit more later on about the specifics of the book, but we wanted to begin just by introducing ourselves to you, who we are, where we come from, what's the place that made us, who we are as writers and as people. And so I'm Virginia Grice. And I'm Irma Mallorca. And we're both going to read excerpts from our autogeographies, how space and place affect the, the writing that we do. So this is dedicated to my mother, Juanita. Um, Juanita Mayorga was also a pathbreaker in her more prescient senses. In raising her daughters, she worked against almost all gender constraints she had faced as a Mexican-American girl and woman. Although Rogelio, my father, could be given to displays of machismo, he reluctantly acquiesced to his wife's decision decisively progressive decisions regarding the rearing of her girls. He had no choice. Juanita's feminist ethos only grew more articulate as the years passed between them. When I was about eight, my mother declared to my father that she was done, exclamation point, making flour tortillas every night for dinner by hand. He'd have to do with store-bought, and he did. Born in San Antonio in 1940, my mother has only disclosed a small fraction of the prejudice and hardships her family endured. She remembered severe punishments in school for speaking Spanish, which is why she refused to teach the language to her girls. Yet she used enough of it in our home to plan its cadences in our consciousness, to discipline us when we needed to be, and when we heard Spanish, we knew we were in big trouble. To shower us with terms of affection or to speak privately with my father, usually about money, so we couldn't hear. She remembers her frustrations at the fact that she had to speak only English at school and only Spanish at home, at mastering neither and living between them as best she could. At quiet moments when plied, she can vividly recount the apartheid-like San Antonio of her youth. Her experiences with the special brand of South Texas racism and discrimination only shored up her decision to refrain from using Spanish altogether. My father concurred, and I can still hear him telling me, English is a money language, mija. In the fleeting glimpses Janie has let slipped over the decades, I have come to know that surviving San Antonio from the 1940s to the 1980s as a Tejana was a constant fight for justice, dignity, and survival. Both of my parents have always wanted the future, not the past. I am the digger, the one who kept asking them to reach back. Most of all, Juanita was bound and determined to redress the educational limits she had faced. She was determined to have her daughters go to college. This decisiveness steered many of her decisions, even if she couldn't explain to us exactly what college was to my sister and me, but she made it sound like the most important, fascinating place on earth. To prepare us, she always empowered us mentally. She never, never implied that we had shortcomings of any kind simply because we were female. She steered us away from activities that ingrained traditional gender roles in our thinking. My sister and I were not permitted to cook, clean, or serve. She also filled our house with a constant flow of books. Thank you, Tucson Book Festival. Including the most treasured books of all, a complete set of world book encyclopedias, each lettered volume bought month by month, paycheck by paycheck. She never insisted we had to marry to become our fullest selves or have children to make her a happy abuela. If anything, she begged my sister and me to pursue our dreams in every way we could. 
In her own organic way, Juanita Mayorga practiced what I tend to think of as a self-hewn, self-made, radically interventionist form of Chicana feminism long before it had a name. She jettisoned from my childhood cultural constraints that could impede the future woman I would become. She has never identified herself as a feminist and has only recently actually used the term Chicana in a positive vein, only after having me claim it for so many years. Before that, her unease, unease was a term was signified by her saying, ay, cochina. Functioning in all measures as a Chicana, she broke down barriers for her daughters in ways that clearly manifested her self-made feminism. Instead of our participation in the kitchen, she would chase us out, insisting, you could be reading a book, you could be coloring a picture. This is not what I want with you to do with your time, with your life. And she never said it outright, but you could hear the unspoken, like me, that hung at the end of her sentence. So we're both from San Antonio. Um, and we both have families that were in the military, and yet we also both have very different experiences. The daughter of a working class white father from Goshen, Indiana. My mother, a Chinese Mexican immigrant. I was 11 years younger than my eldest sister. What they call a surprise. I was the child my parents hadn't planned or expected. The youngest of three girls born in the South on a military base in Fort Gordon, Georgia. When my mother told my father he was, she was pregnant, he went to the local library and calculated exactly how much it would cost to send me to college. He kept a three by four notebook with the figures in the breast pocket of his Dickies work shirt. I'm not sure what formula he used to figure it all out, but my sisters and I were the first to go to college on both sides of our family, and all three of us graduated completely debt free. Like my mother, I was a daddy's girl. She taught me how to write, he was the one that taught me how to read. My father read the paper every morning before going to work. And growing up, and my father's blind now, and so he still wakes up at 6 a.m. even though he's retired, and he listens to the radio every morning, right? So every morning he read the paper before going to work. Growing up, it was a given that we should think about the world around us critically and politically. My father believed that that was everyone's responsibility, regardless of one's education, race, class, or gender. He hated boredom and he hated ignorance. Like my father, I started running away when I was very young, imagining the worlds beyond my neighborhood. I rode my bike to the cemetery, the railroad tracks, the ditch down the street, the corner store, the dirt road behind our house, up and down hills, up and down hills around sharp corners. I learned about scraped knees, stolen flowers, and things girls at five shouldn't know, no matter how grown they think they are. And I made up stories set in faraway places like how I was born in a big blue house in California. As a kid, I had an imaginary friend named Carla. She was a fast girl and a shit talker and taught me how to say mother. Or at least that's what I told my mom when she asked me where I learned that word. My father read somewhere that creative, intelligent people have imaginary friends. So he encouraged my mother to set a plate for Carla at the dinner table one evening. My mother made it halfway through dinner before she threw the plate on the floor, breaking it, and then took me to the curandera, one of many childhood visits to the curandera that involved flowers, huevos, smoke, spitting, and our holy water. She was trying to cure me of my badness, but it only made me think that being Mexican was magic. 
As a teenager, I spent many nights on the roof of my parents' house in the back of trucks next to the river, an empty field on the hoods of cars underneath the stars, dreaming. Like my mother, I wanted to be anywhere other than my mother's house. Like her father, my mother traveled many countries before settling somewhere she actually had no connection to, no memory of, and called it home. You are listening to the Panza Monologues, book reading and platica from the 2015 Festival of Books on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So we're going to read pieces, um, that's our introduction to each of us, and we're going to read pieces of the Panza Monologues as we go through, but we wanted to also kind of give you the story of how it came to be and how it came to be a book and what's in the book and all of those good things. So the Panza Monologues, um, because we're both from San Antonio, is a San, Ansto- San Antonio story. And at the time that we wrote it, which is about, um, we started work on the production about 10 years ago, San Antonio was the third largest city in the nation. Um, and so we w- really felt like we were in this capital place of Tejano culture, of Latinidad, and we had, uh, we're both working as um, cultural workers in a very radically left, uh, radically left cultural center in the center of a big red state. And we felt that all the time in our work. And that's actually what brought us together as being activists, not theater makers, not playwrights. We were really trying to change the shape of Texas. Um, We succeeded partly, at least in San Antonio, (laughs) creating a bastion that was more friendly. But when we were doing this work, um, if you've ever worked as a community organizer, as an activist, we were grabbing meals on the go. And our center was in the middle of a huge strip on um, San Pedro Avenue. We were surrounded by fast food. And we were watching our work grow, and we were watching our panzas grow. In fact, all the women that we worked with were we were panzonas. We were just big women. And we were starting to think about how this incredible group of women um, was also this huge group of women and the links between structural racism in San Antonio and food justice and obesity and then our bodies, the corporeal kind of way that it, it, um, poverty or uh, our cultural foods were affecting our bodies or even the fact that we couldn't, there wasn't a grocery store near us. So there was even a matter of many of our neighborhoods, there was no way to get fresh produce. So it wasn't that women didn't know how to eat healthily or that they didn't want to feed their families uh, really good foods. It's a matter of, did you have access to resources? Do you have a way to get there if you're carrying home groceries on the bus? There's things that impede the way that food comes into your house and the way you consume food. Um, And we started throwing around um, quips jokes, cheese days, and there was a way I would record them um, at my desk because they were so smart. The group of women we worked with were so incredibly talented and smart, and we would sit around the table eating Bill Miller's barbecue and reflect on our panzas, and I started writing down these one-liners, and Virginia Grice um, had some of the smartest, quickest one-liners, and she would often whip out her panza and proudly parade it around, and everybody be like, Vicky, put away your panza, and these things started manifesting into a performance piece just by the everyday chisme and chatter and and chistes that we threw around between us and we started saying what we don't we, we don't need a vagina monologues does anybody know Eve Ensler's a vagina monologues it's a play usually gets done in February we need a panza monologues 
because we had things to say about our panzas, not so much about our vaginas, but certainly everybody that we asked had a panza story, how they felt about their panza. They could say what their panza would want to say if the panza could speak. They all had an opinion about, or somebody else's panza, their lover's panza, their mother's panza. Everybody had an opinion, as opposed to the minute we said, well, what do you think about your vagina? Silence. <laughs> this is when we came across the idea, we really do need a panza monologues. So we asked ourselves, how did the panza come to be? And this is that story, historia. This is us together, it's a rare moment. <laughs> In the beginning, because every people needs a story that starts that way. In the beginning was the sound like the universe exploding. It came. Took form. Gave life. In the beginning. When there wasn't just one God. But many gods. Las diosas dijeron, give me panza, large and round. Give me panza to keep me warm. Give me panza, my body's own drum. Music, music making, making sensation. sensation. Las diosas dijeron, let there be panza. And so it was. La panza, esta parte tan importante de nuestra vida. Ahí va todo. Los ovarios. La matriz. El vientre. Las diosas prayed. Lit velas. Asked the moon. Watch over our creation. You who controls the waves will control woman, her bloods. Cada factor, cada molanito de su cuerpo. Las diosas imagine un mundo donde la gente no tendrá que sufrir hambres. You will learn your abuelita's remedios. Aceite de olivo calientito, un tecito de canela o manzanilla, curarás con tus propias manos. Las, las diosas dijeron, let there be panza. And so it was. Que vivan la que vivan las lonjas. Que vivan. And so it was written on the bodies of women. Que vivan las chichis. Que vivan. So it was written on the hearts of panzoncitas. Que viva la panza. Que vivan. And so it was written on the bodies of Chicana heavyweights all across Aslan. Live your life without shame. Que viva la panza. Que viva la panza. Que viva la panza. And so it was written. So the stories that we wrote weren't just about body image. We actually asked a bunch of women to contribute stories. So that's why it says collected by, written by. Uh, we curated the writing because we wanted to come from our community. We asked women of different ages, different um, Chicanas and Mexicanas who live in San Antonio. So we have um, one by an organizer and she was I think in her late 60s or 70s. We asked young women. Um, we asked men, as many women as we could and we edited down the stories and, and Virginia and I also wrote a bunch of the stories in the play. And all of this was to show that it was specific to our community. And what's always surprising to us, while it's a love letter to San Antonio, and while it's very much about the Chicanas who live there, it has traveled all over where women have come and said, but that's my story too. Like you are also telling my story. And I'm not from San Antonio, and I'm not her in the book, but it's widened out. And part of it is, we believe, it's because the panza is political. So we had a woman who wrote a story that's called The Panza's Political, and I'm going to read her story because it explains how the panza becomes the core place where we can start seeing the way that the world is according to women. So I want to read uh, Political Panza. So you have to imagine there's a band playing behind me four-piece band on stage. 
And um, this was written by a community activist in San Antonio. And the one thing is, she wanted to write a panza monologue, but she's a flaca. Does everybody know what a flaca is? Flaca is a skinny woman. She's like, I, need, I have a panza monologue too. It's not just you panzonas that have words to say. Everybody's got a panza story. And so she asks, well, what about us flacas? It's true, I don't have a panza. Vas a pedir tus nalgas with all that exercising, and men want something they can grab, and then what? That's what my panza sisters say to me. Women like me in this panza city need our civil rights. I get harassed all the time by the panza majority, who I thought were my hermanas in the struggle. People just expect me to have a panza. I'm a 50-year-old woman, after all. See, it's true, I'm 50. Sometimes I think I have chosen not to have a panza so that I could learn that there is a panza inside my panza. And inside those panzas you can't see, there are little boys who will one day grow up to be men. If we raise them by what we know to be true, they will love the panzas they come from and they will blow down the panzas they are now, that are now destroying our earth for golf courses and for petroleum wars. You see, this is why I'm in solidarity with my panza sisters, because the panza is political. If we asked how the panza was for all the citizens of a given society, we might not have hunger for our children or our elders. If we asked how the panza was for a woman with child, we might have quality prenatal care for all expectant mothers. If we asked how is the panza, is it fed, is it warm, is it nourished, was this panza living next to an electrical plant, a lead site, a cancer cluster, will it get the medical medicine it needs for a healthy panza? Perhaps if our government instituted panza positive policies, we might have world peace because we can see our humanity by the well-being of our panzas. So don't be afraid of what we have to do because we are all the panza. And to claim panza is to be free. Free, and it's mine, and it's yours, and we are all pancitas in one big round panza. And she loves us very much. The panza is political. The next piece I'm going to read is called International Panza. And International Panza is based on when I went to Cuba, when people were shocked to see my size. I guess they're not used to panzonas in Cuba. The International Panza. Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. The Cubanos shouted in the streets as we walked by like sports announcers. Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. They recognized us by our nationality before we even spoke. Confused cuando yo metí la palabra. Oiga, tú no eres de México. And I tried to explain to them Chicana, Atlan, broken treaties, border crossing, the Mexican-American War, La Migra, the Treaty of Guadalupe, San Antonio. You see, my mom's Mexicana, but my father, he was Chinese. And my father, well, he's white. So that makes you what, he asks. And the Mexicanas try to help, explaining that I'm one of them, sort of, and then again, I'm not. And the Cubano seems to understand, or oh, like the gusanos, you mean. No, not at all, the Mexicanas explain. She didn't have a choice. You see, Texas was once part of Mexico, but overnight, brothers became enemies, paisanos, outsiders, and invaders, rightful owners of a land that they stole the from the Mexicans who stole the land from the Indians. 
She's a Tejana. Americana? The Mexicanas try again, this time breaking it down into its syllables. Chicana. And I decide not to tell them that I really was born in Georgia because my father was in the military, but we did move to Texas when I was three and I've never lived anywhere else. San Antonio is my home. I decide not to tell them that my mother's family is not Chichimeca. The border didn't cross her. She crossed it and not even during the revolution of 1910, but in the 1960s. She married a gringo so that she could go to the US of A's. My father was from a farming town, Goshen, Indiana, and my real name is Virginia, Virginia May, not Victoria, Vicky, Kike, or Virginia even. My ways are a little less Wasquatche and a whole lot more trailer trash. My great-grandmother's last name was Cortez, for God's sakes. I decide not to tell them that the blood of the conqueror takes up more space than anything else inside my body, but no, I am not an Americana. The U.S. of A's did not want me, huera, alta y gorda, any more than I wanted my mother, prieta, baja y gorda. I don't explain to the Cubano or the Mexicanas why my Spanish is broken, that the reason I speak bocha has as much to do with assimilation as it does with oppression, that Spanish is also the language of the colonizers. This they already know. And just when I decide not to tell them all of that, the Cubano looks at me and says, Mexico is in your face. Tu gente si era mexicana, lo ves en tu cara. And I ask, how did you know? Even before we spoke, how did you know to call them by their country of birth, me by my country of memory, us by the tierra de nuestros antepasados? How did you know that we were Mexico? Es que la cara de Mexico está más gorda, más redonda. The face of Mexico is just fatter and more round, and I want to protest. But first, I take a second look at my compañeras, and it's true. They're not gordas like me, but all our faces are round, even when our panzas aren't. Our faces are round like the Luna, who doesn't show her face in Cuba during the winter months. Our faces round like the tortilla, pan the Cubanos do not eat. All of us, big, fat, Omeka heads. Not like the faces of other Latinos, definitely not like the face of a Cubano shaped long like azúcar de caña. Somos nosotras las hijas de Coyeshauki, full moon faces. Y yo con una panza to match. Big, round, beautiful, full moon panza to match my Omeka head. Me dice el Cubano, have you noticed that my people aren't fat? How many fat Cubanos have you seen since you've arrived to the island? And I want to ask, you mean set for Fidel, right? I do believe in the revolution, but the revolution was better to some than others, and Castro did put on a few pounds after the overthrow of Batista. There was no denying that that man's panza was well fed. Anyway, set for Fidel, it's true. I had seen very few Cubanos with panza. Driving from the airport to Havana, I saw a woman, a woman get off the Wawa, a woman as big as me, dressed in hot speak, pink spandex leotards and a t-shirt gathered and tied in the back. Her panza completely exposed the entire time, just like that. And they were hot pink. 
I don't know what it was. Maybe she was just hot. But the woman walked Panza first, belly out, with absolutely no shame. It looked like she had more important things to worry about. Places to go, people to see. She probably had to wait two hours for that damn bus. Probably had a stand jammed right up against someone else riding the Camayo. So when they let her loose out into the street, she was walking head up, back straight, Panza out. She made me turn around in my seat just to look at her, pink leotard lady in all her confidence. You see, I talk a lot of Panza power trash. Hell, I talk a lot of trash in general, call attention to myself. Look at me, flash you a little Panza. The truth is, I want you to look at it. I want you to know that I know it's there. I want you to tell me to put it away so that I could say, hell no, I'm proud of my Panza. But this woman, she didn't need to say a word because she was living it, walking the talk with all her pink leotard glory and all her confidence. And you know what? She looked good too. So before I can tell the Cubano about my panza positive image, he begins to explain to me why Cubanos aren't big people. Obesity, he explains, is an illness of capitalism. Jew, looking straight at me, come mucho, you eat too much, demasiado. We only eat what we need, beans, rice, yuca, pollo frito. We don't eat more than we need. You eat everything. You probably even eat when you're not even hungry. We only eat enough to keep us fed. That's it. Es todo. That's all you need, really. Un potico. You Americans are capitalists, so you want to take more than what you need. So if obesity is a disease of capitalism, why is it that San Antonio is one of the largest cities in the nation and at the same time, one of the poorest. You've been listening to part one of a panel discussion from the Nuestras Raices Pavilion at the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books called the Panza Monologues, Book Reading and Platica. The Panza Monologues feature the words of Chicanas speaking with humor and candor about their panzas. The panelists are Virginia Gris and Erma Mayorga. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager.